Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and uh, we just can't say enough how holy and good your word is. It is your word. It is righteous and true, and I pray that you make that truth evident and concrete for us in our hearts so that we can humble ourselves up under it. Lord, that we don't just read past these words, but that we take them ever so seriously. They are your words. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word is forever. And it is true and solid ground for us to stand upon. So Lord, humble us up under it. Give us clarity as we talk about it and as we work our way through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So I'm not going to have you turn there. I, will, I would like for you to turn to Colossians 1.24. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And then also uh, 2 Timothy. We're very late in the game. We'll hit 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, just for a minute. I'm going to read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, just to uh, get us all, because that's kind of been our anchor text for several weeks now. <clears throat> So in Matthew 28, Jesus says, uh, well, he says, and Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now in Colossians 1.24, Paul is writing and he says, now... I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And then in 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul again is writing and he says to Timothy, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So I didn't have you turn to Matthew 28, but there Jesus gave us a final command before he ascended into heaven. He said, go and make disciples. This has been the theme for several weeks now. We spent a long time uh, looking at how Jesus has told us to build the church, as he said, and he said in Matthew 16, when he told Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Those two statements in Matthew 16 and here in Matthew 28, they, they go together. Um, they're, they're inextricably linked, and it's remarkable in how they're linked because Jesus is commanding us to go and do something that only He can do. As I see it, and I, I'll confess to you up front that I am painting with a very broad brush, and my wife gets on to me sometimes for doing that, but I, I have to paint with a broad brush because that's what preachers do. <laughs> I cannot stand up here and just talk to one person. I've got to speak to all of you. So broad brushes are what we use. And I've got to work, do my job to try to narrow the application as much as I can. And uh, so it tries to hit somewhere in your ballpark. And then I rely on the Holy Spirit to try to bring it home for you. But with my broad brush strokes, the problem that I see 
is that Christ gives us this great commission, and this applies to both the, the church, the body corporate, and it applies to individuals, but many Christians, a lot of Christians, they've set aside their responsibilities for making disciples, and they've pushed all of that off onto the church, the organization. They don't take a personal role in the work of making disciples, often because we don't see them for a lack of compassion. We've talked about that, Christian blindness. And if we manage to solve that problem of Christian blindness, and we, we look at the world through the eyes of joy-fueled, joy-enabled Christian compassion, then we often face another problem on the other side of that, where they're looking back at us, but they don't see us because we look too much like they do. Christian camouflage, that was last week. Why would they want what we've got if it looks too much like what they already have? And we've talked about some reasons and uh, some dangers uh, that uh, Christians face. I believe that making disciples is of very great importance. Uh, we ought to have a passion for it. If we don't, then we ought to be on our knees repenting and begging God to give us a heart to pursue the lost sheep of the world. And I'm not just making that up. That's not just me thinking, oh, this is what we ought to do. That is based on what I read in the Scripture. I, I have found that the older I get and the more I study God's Word, I feel it is very important for us not to just gloss over what it says. For me personally, I really want to let it what it says to, to sink in. I mean... There's just so much that, that we read here in the Bible that we just move right past it without thinking twice about it. And we, we, what it says, when, when we read it, there, we come to some things that we read, and it, and it really should stop us dead in our tracks. It really should stop us. I mean, and we should be saying, did, did I really just read what I read? Amen. Did it really just say that? Am I really supposed to do this? I mean, did, did, really, did Jesus really just say that we ought to leap for joy when people hate us and exclude us and revile us and call us evil because of him? For, for great is your reward when they do that. Did he really just say that? Am I supposed to rejoice when they call me evil things? Am I supposed to rejoice when they exclude me? Because we don't do that. I mean, we don't ever do that. We get mad. We get, we get angry. We get so angry when they do that stuff to us. We want to fight. We want to fight on TV. We want to fight in court. We want to fight on social media. We want to fight. I mean, just because we're not throwing fists doesn't mean we're not fighting. But Jesus said, rejoice. He said, leap for joy because great is your reward. How many of you have read that sentence there in the Scripture and just read right past it and never once stopped to consider what it really, really means. Oh, sure, we'll shout hallelujah about the reward, but what about rejoicing when they're calling us names and reviling us and excluding us? What about when they're kicking us off and out of the polling places? What about when they're kicking us out of the school boards and off of the city councils? Where's the hallelujah then? Are we rejoicing then? See, I want to take the word of God seriously. 
I mean, it, it's God's word, right? He spoke it. It's God's word. It's holy and sacred and divine and wise. It is forever. It is truth. It is solid, unshakable, and there's, there's just nothing else like it. Amen. There's just nothing else like it. Oh, there's philosophers. There's all kinds of other kind of wisdom, but there's nothing else like the Word of God. You can build on all kinds of shaky sand, but you cannot build on anything like the Word of God. You build on this stuff, and you will not fall. I just, I just want to live my life by it. And that means knowing it. And that means taking it seriously when it says things. So when Jesus tells me to go and make disciples and God shows us how much he cares about the world and Jesus shows us how much he cares about his church, I just think we ought to take that seriously. Amen. Amen. Which is why when I come to a passage like Colossians 1.24, I get stopped dead in my tracks. It makes me think. It makes me shudder. It shakes me in my boots. The message I have for you this morning is heavy. And I don't mean dreary. I don't mean like, whoa, is me. I mean, it's weighty. It's, it's one of those messages that really can change the trajectory of your life. I would say even for those of you who are past the age of retirement. You know, there is no retirement in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? It's the kind of message that can light a fire in you to sell your possessions and devote your life to missions. It's the kind of message that can cause you to want to downsize your home and live smaller and cheaper so you can devote your resources to helping others. The Word of God, when planted in fertile soil, can cause you to do very radical things. And this is not because I'm any kind of a great preacher. I'm not saying this message will do that because I'm so eloquent and and good at, at what I'm doing. Not at all. It's because the Word of God is true, and He is merciful and gracious to us. It's because He can take the mediocre words that are spoken by this very mediocre man. He can use them to do a miracle in the hearts of the people who hear them, and he can use your willing hearts to do his wonders in the world. So the title of the message today is Christ to the World, Why We Suffer. Christ to the World, Why We Suffer. I want you to consider that in light of the fact that we have been in a series on the Great Commission. In light of the fact that we are sent, a sent church made up of sent people to present Christ to the world. I just want to say this, I want to lay it on the table right up the front. I want to, I'm going to take you through it hopefully and hopefully you will see what I see. But up at the front, put my cards on the table, this is why we suffer to present Christ to the world, to put Him on display, to make Him apparent and present from 2,000 years ago to today, to bring in the harvest, to make disciples. 
It's not likely you'll hear a message like this preached in the mega churches and on TV programs because it just doesn't pay the bills. Because I'm not here to promise you financial gain this morning and I'm not here to promise you better health if you just accept Jesus or if you put a little money in the, in the pot. I could spend all day railing against popular theology, uh, the popular theology of comfort and the popular theology of wealth and health and the idols that they push. Prosperity theology is a cancer that has sadly infected so much of the global church, not just the American church, but the global church. It's no wonder that churches are struggling during this pandemic. If you faint in the day of adversity, then your faith is weak, and that's all they had to sell was weak faith. Come to Jesus, and guess what? You won't ever have to worry about cancer. Come to Jesus, and you won't have to worry about getting laid off work. Come to Jesus, and you won't have to worry about your kids. And yet Jesus said in this life you will have tribulation. That means suffering. So what happens when the cancer strikes and when you are first in line for the layoffs or when your family is hit by the drunk driver? Because one of those is a lie. Either Jesus is lying or they are. Told you it doesn't pay the bills to preach this way. Church, the reason people buckle and lose their faith, they leave the church when bad things happen, is because they were never prepared for it. They were never given a a solid theology that includes suffering as the Christian experience. They were fed a lie that said that God would never allow them to suffer. They were fed a lie that said that if they ever had to suffer, that God would always fix it. They were fed a lie that said God would never ordain suffering. Well, let me ask you, explain that to Jesus Christ. Explain that to the Apostle Paul. Explain that to every other disciple who had to face murder and torture. Explain that to the countless martyrs who were flayed alive, who were drawn and quartered, who were burned at the stake, who had all their things taken from them, who were plundered all for the sake of the gospel. Explain that to them. Countless thousands over history. Name it and claim it. Yeah, give me that. You read the whole New Testament and that's what you come out of it with? Are you serious? I better not get lost in that because I'll talk all day about it and it will get my blood boiling. It will. I'm serious. It makes me so mad to my core at the lives. And I, I mean, I mean the... The people we have lost from the church, the, the lambs that we have lost because they've been sold this lie. Amen. Yes, God heals. Yes, God provides. Those things are true. Those are sweet and tender mercies from a gracious and loving Father. But you and me We were bought, purchased with blood. And the church is built upon that same rock. There is no getting around it. Gold can't buy it. 
Silver can't buy it. Health and wealth can't buy it. It was blood that purchased it. Blood will sustain it. Blood will build it. Oh, I'm going to run. Now to my next, or my text this morning. Colossians chapter 1. Paul is writing, and what he says is absolutely stunning. It is shocking. It is a shocking statement for anyone to say. Even for someone as anointed and called and committed to Christ's purpose as the Apostle Paul. It is almost as if he is diminishing what Christ has done. What are you saying, Paul? What are you saying here? Right at the start, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. What? What in the world? Those two words don't even go together. Rejoice and suffering? What is that? How is that even possible to rejoice in suffering, let alone to do it on behalf of someone else? I'm going to try to give you an example that most of you can relate to, and not because I'm trying to elevate a man to be praised, but because I, I want you to see how this is lived out practically. Amen. Most of you know my dad's situation. We talked about it earlier. It is not a pretty situation. He has not had an easy go of it, uh, not for a very long time, Amen. and not through any fault of his own. For the last 10 years or so, uh, because of a very careless and incompetent surgeon who had no business in the operating room, he has suffered the loss of his sight, the loss of his independence, his mobility, his health. He has suffered many things at the hands of physicians. I remember someone in Scripture who had that same issue. Do you remember the woman with the issue of blood? It's been a, a roller coaster with him. For the last 10 years, we've had him in and out of the hospital. Uh, he's been through countless surgeries. There have been way too many times when it seemed like we may have said our last goodbyes to him. Um, He's had ups and downs, and each time he goes downhill, he seems to go a little bit lower, and he stays a little bit longer. And when he comes back up the hill, he never quite gets to the same highs that he had before. Amen. Um, I have wrestled over this. I have prayed over this, because I know the promises that God has given. Amen. You know what I'm saying? I know the Scripture is to stand on. And I know that dad has wrestled over it as well. And here's the other thing. Nobody wants to suffer. No one. Nobody wants pain. Christians don't want to suffer. We don't want it. Jesus did not want to suffer. He prayed in the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. He didn't want to suffer. No one wants suffering. There'll be something wrong with you if you wanted suffering. But when suffering comes, and it will come, can you see the sweetness in it? 
And by that I mean, can you still see the Lord's hand in it? Can you still rejoice in it? And I'm going to try to show you why we rejoice in it here in just a minute. I often ask the Lord, why does my dad languish in the way that he does? I've often asked him that. Why does he languish? Why does he languish for so long? And I know that my dad has laid there and asked, Lord, for how long? Why? What have I done? And the truth of the matter is that we're all just lucky because we all deserve it. Amen. Every last one, we deserve it. Amen. We deserve every ounce of pain and torment that we get. Yes, we deserve it. But when I ask the question, I'm, I'm quickly taken to how many people, how many lives that dad has touched even from his bed. Amen. How many people he's prayed for that you don't even know about while he suffers. See, uh, and I know that many of you have been on the receiving end of those prayers and, and the phone calls that he makes. What does that do for a person who receives encouragement and self-sacrifice from someone else who has it so much worse off than you do? It's like you're getting up to run a race, and you're at the starting line of the race, and you know how the crowd gathers to cheer you on, and you look over, and there's a man that has no legs, and he's there to cheer you on. How much more do you want to run? How much more convincing and convicting is that encouragement when you see something like that? It's easy to say that God is faithful when everything's going good. But when you're lying flat on your back and you, you cannot see and you, you, you can barely even feed yourself and you can't clothe yourself and you can't change yourself. And you know, those words, God is good and God is faithful and God will provide and God will take care of you and God will get you through. Those words, you, you just don't throw away those words. You just don't toss those words around. You're going to fight for every ounce of joy that you have. You're going to fight for every ounce of gratitude attitude and thankfulness that you have every call that you make to give someone encouragement you're going to fight for that because you've got to find it within you to do it Amen. and he'll lay in bed and he'll call people to pray for them and encourage them while he is in pain and hurting all over his body i could explain to you in great detail the situation that he's in but it just it's just not words that's really good for a public setting it would it would gross you out it really would. Amen. Amen. And at night, he'll pray, thank you, Lord, that I haven't lost everything. Yes. <sighs> thank you, Lord, that I can still use the phone and call people and encourage them, yes. rejoicing in his suffering. You know, that was one of his biggest concerns a week ago when we were looking at things and he was really bad and he would have a moment of clarity and uh, was that he wasn't able to use his phone looked up at me and he said son that's the only way I know how to minister anymore I can't get up I can't get out I can't go and do you know used to he'd go and do stuff he's a handyman a craftsman he could go fix things he'd go talk to people he'd go buy people lunch he could build ramps for people, go, go do locks on doors, he could fix plumbing, he could do all those kinds of things. That's what he'd go do for people, go minister to people. He can't do any of that anymore, all I can do is pick up the phone. 
And when he lost that, he said, son, that's all I know how to do. He's worried about doing that. I can't, I can't reach people. I can't spread the gospel. I can't, I can't minister the Lord Jesus without my phone. So when difficulty hits your life, think about this. When difficulty hits your life, can you look Weeping may endure for a night, joy comes in the morning. So after, after you've cried it out, right? I mean, because pain hurts, okay? That's okay. Pain hurts, and, and suffering hurts. So we're going to cry. People cry. That's okay. No problem with that. We're going to cry. So after we've wept and we cry, I've done plenty of crying. You can ask my family. I don't know what has happened to me recently, but I'm a big crybaby. I think it was when Brianna went to college. Just cry all the time. Um, it's okay. We cry. Things hurt. Amen. Yes, they do. But when we cry, can we lift our head to heaven? And with tears in our eyes, can we say, Thank you, Lord, that I can still tell others how good you are. Amen. If a testimony of your goodness is all that I have left, then you have left me enough to rejoice. See, Paul said, I have rejoiced in my sufferings for your sake. That is so stunning to begin with. What a remarkable thing to say. But then, he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says something even more shocking. Something even more beyond understanding. Paul says that he, Paul, this mere man, is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's affliction? Did he not suffer enough? Did he not bear enough? Was the sins of the whole world forever and ever, were they, were they not enough, Paul? Was it, was it being pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities? Was that not enough? Was it, was it not enough that he was despised and rejected by his own? Was it not enough that he came and he, he loved us and, and he came to save us, but we threw him out? Was the crown of thorns and the whipping posts, were they not enough? Was the cross of Calvary not enough? What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? I mean, if you take the Bible seriously, this ought to shake you in your boots to read something like that. It should knock you out of your seat. <laughs> what in the world? This is earth-moving, life-changing stuff. How, oh Lord, could there possibly be anything lacking in your afflictions after all that you have been through? And how could we, feeble and low and sinful and wretched as we are, how could we possibly make up any lack? Well, it's certainly not in terms of sacrifice or salvation. It's not in terms of Christ's worth. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, fully God, fully man, the all-sufficient sacrifice. There's nothing lacking in Him, right? Not in terms of the atonement, not in terms of His sacrifice, not in terms of the completed work on Calvary. When Jesus said, it is finished, He declared it done, and it was done for all eternity. And yet, 
guided by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote that he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So what is lacking? There are two other times where this same Greek word for lack that Paul used here is used in the New Testament, and they're both used by Paul. One is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 30. Paul has been away from Philippi, the church, and he spent some time in prison. The church there cared very much for Paul. He was their father, their church father. He's a planter. And uh, so they sent Epaphroditus to Paul uh, with a message of support and a gift. Along the way, Epaphroditus got very sick, and it took him a while to recover. So when he was well enough to travel, Paul sent him back with this letter of the Philippians. And in it, he tells the church to be thankful for Epaphroditus. And in verse 30, he says, because he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, what was lacking in their service? So Paul says Epaphroditus was completing what was lacking in the Philippians' service to him by bringing their gift to him. He was completing the lack by bringing their gift to him. Now, the church was no doubt praying for Paul and corresponding with him through letters and messengers, but the gift and the visit completed some kind of lack. It, it, it was something more tangible. So words are very important. Okay, Words matter. But look at what James says about words when talking about faith without works. James chapter 2, 15 through 17. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, also by itself, if it hath not works, it's dead. In other words, what good is it for you if you say something and you don't back it up with actions, right? Words spoken with good intentions, they ring hollow when there is no follow-through with good works. So to define the Greek word that is used for lack here that Paul uses when he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, and when he says to the, uh, 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 the Philippians to, to complete what is lacking in your service, the definition there is it means that it, it's a state of needing something that is absent or unavailable. Amen. So I need something, but it's not here, or it's unavailable to me, or unex- inaccessible to me. Maybe it's locked away. And so put yourself in Paul's shoes, okay? So he's sitting in a cold, dark prison cell, and he gets a letter. And it's a wonderful letter. All is well, Paul. The church is doing good. The people are well. People are being saved and baptized. And we are praying for you. And we love you. And we can't wait to see you again. And of course, that lifts Paul's spirits. Oh, I'm so thankful. Things are going well for them. Of course, that makes Paul feel better. But there's just something something of a lack I mean after weeks and months and years you just, you just need something more than, than what's being given 
And this, that's no condemnation on them. They're doing well. They're doing well to pray for him and to offer words of encouragement. But Paul has a need that, that is, is in his prison cell. He needs, he's sitting there alone and, and he's, he's thinking, I just, I need more than words. Yeah. 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 I, need, I need something to fill in this lack. I mean, the words are sweet, but there's a lack. There's a lack between brother, I'm praying for you, and here, let me walk with you. There's a lack between, man, I I feel your pain, and let me carry that burden for you. There's a lack. So there's a lack here that, that Paul is talking about that's there's not a lack in any kind of a merit. It's a lack in time and, and presence. I mean, they, the, there's no lack in merit. That this, it means the same when they say, write a letter and say, we love you. It means the same when they send Epaphroditus to say, we love you. What's lacking is time and presence. It, it's one thing to hear a sincere, and I can testify to this, it's one thing to hear a sincere, heartfelt, I love you over the phone or on the screen from my daughter. Amen. 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 Who is, you know, seven hours away in Tennessee at college. Amen. It is something altogether different to receive a warm hug or a Amen. kiss on the cheek. Yes, yes, they mean the same thing. They say the same thing. There's nothing lacking in the merit. They both have the same merit, but one fills up what is lacking in the other. By virtue of time and presence. We We don't suffer just to suffer, church. It is not meaningless. It is never meaningless. So never waste your suffering. Never throw it out. Never chalk it up. It is a representation of what happened 2,000 years ago. Look at what Paul said back in Colossians 1.24. He said, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Why do I do it? It's for the sake of the body, for the sake of the church. That's why I do it. That's the great commission. Our suffering, our afflictions represent Christ for the purpose of building the church, winning the lost. They bring what happened 2,000 years ago into the present, into the eyes of unbelievers, not just their ears. So it's not just a story that they hear, but a sight that they behold. Oh, I wish I had the right words. That's what Paul is saying in Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2. He says, therefore, I, 2 Timothy 2.10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Why? That they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ. I endure all this for the sake of the elect. The elect is whosoever would believe. Whosoever comes into Christ, that's the elect, so that they may obtain salvation. My suffering is for their sake, so they can have what I have. It's for the Great Commission. I wish I had time to really unpack that text, but I'm, I'm running low. 
Church, your suffering, your affliction is not in vain. It is not for nothing. It is not for nothing. There's purpose in it. The Great Commission is behind it. Did you ever think about that? How... mm. You've read past that passage. I guarantee you, if you've ever read that passage, you just read past it and you never once thought about it. Someone is watching how you suffer. Someone is watching you in your affliction. And they're watching how you fight for joy or how you wallow in defeat. Someone is watching how you suffer. They're watching how you pour yourself out to others even though you have nothing left to give. Even though your whole body aches. Or they're watching how you withdraw into yourself, how you recoil into yourself, how you demand that every eye be on you. They're watching how you melt down and break down. Do you suffer selfishly or do you suffer like a savior? Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I'm almost done. Give me three minutes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was an influential pastor and a theologian in the mid-20th century. He was a martyr as well. He was hanged by the Nazis at the age of 39 in 1945. He said this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I'm going to say that again. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that is really what taking up your cross is all about, isn't it? The language of the scriptures, I mean, just look at the language, about crucifying the flesh and dying to oneself. I mean, Jesus didn't take up a metaphorical cross. It wasn't a figure of speech for him. It was a death march. He carried his cross to his death. What else could he have meant when Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, because he knew exactly what he was going to do, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. This is not an invitation Is it not an invitation to join Jesus on the Calvary Road? And here's the thing. As he walked down the Via Dolorosa, that's the road to Calvary, the people who were watching him, they they had no idea what was going on. What they saw was a man condemned. They lacked context. Okay? They were on the wrong side of the cross. But they watched Jesus take it. They watched him beaten and not complain. They watched him be ridiculed and mocked and did not hear him offer a defense. He turned the other cheek. They watched him hang on the cross and they heard him pray for them. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them. They saw him patiently endure evil because the servant of the Lord 
patiently endures evil. And once it had all been done, once he breathed his last breath, then their eyes could be opened. Then the veil was torn. That was when the Roman soldier said, surely this was the Son of God. They saw him suffer like a Savior. It was something to behold. It was something to see. It was terrible. And at the same time, wonderful. It was horrible. And at the same time, beautiful. Sorrowful. And yet, joyful. Christ, the Lord of all creation, died for you to make you free. The Bible teaches us that faith only comes by hearing. So the story must be told. The story has to be told. That's why we preach. That's why we tell the gospel story. But isn't it funny that seeing is believing? That's why we suffer to add context to the story that we tell. So that they may hear and see that God is good. Especially when we suffer for their sakes. Oh, I've kept it very broad today. Just, just talking about the suffering in general that we endure and how we handle and how we uh, approach our, our own afflictions and our own suffering. But when we add that element of self-sacrifice for another, oh, the power we have in that testimony. So when affliction comes to you and you find yourself suffering, remember you have a cross to carry. Oh, for sure, we ought to pray. Jesus gave us that example. Lord, let this cup pass from me. Paul gave us that example. I sought the Lord three times that he would take this this thorn from my flesh. Seek his mercy. Seek his deliverance. But also seek his strength to endure. Above all, seek his glory that no matter what, he would be glorified, whether by your deliverance from the suffering or by your perseverance through it. Suffer, but rejoice. Weep, but praise. Suffer like a savior so that people will see you and say, God is truly good. That's all I got for you today. I told you it's heavy. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. You are good. And I just pray that these words settle in our hearts and I pray that you do what only you can do. Light a fire in us, O Lord. Keep us safe as we travel and bring us back at the appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.